are a lot of ways to frame the issue of reducing avoidable hospital readmissions. When the first-of-its-kind financial penalties were imposed last month by CMS on some 2,200 hospitals in the U.S. for higher-than-average 30-day rates, it capped a period of time when the press couldn't write about anything else. It also capped a period in which a number of articles and studies questioned the fairness of the pending fines, raising a whole host of questions about who or what's most responsible for getting it right, and whether CMS had unfairly jumped the gun, especially given how challenging it is to disrupt and transform systems that have allowed bouncing back into the hospital to be business as usual, literally and figuratively, I think I can say that, for so long. I raise all this now to, in a sense, clear the air and clear some space to focus differently on readmissions, because as you'll be reminded in just a few minutes by today's guests, if you make the patient your North Star, you put yourself in a different mindset and on a different path for improvement and for the future. The hard stuff doesn't go away, but the framing of what matters, for starters, does, and plenty of people and organizations want to help, including on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly, and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. It's great to have you and all of you getting on board. Uh, we hope you'll uh, engage with us in a whole host of ways today. And I'm quite honored to have snagged time on a few people's calendars today who are very much in the know on improving care coordination in order to, among other things, change the trajectory of hospital readmission. I want to now introduce our guests, and a reminder that their longer bios and all sorts of achievements and accolades are on the WIHI show webpage on IHI.org. First, I want to say that Elizabeth, um, also known as Betsy Bradley, is not able to join us today due to unanticipated travel out of the country. She sends her regrets, but she also sends us a terrific colleague in her stead, and that's Leora Horwitz, who is one of the co-authors with Betsy Bradley of a recently published national study on readmissions, and Leora is a national expert on bridging gaps related to discontinuities of care. Leora is Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine at Yale University School of Medicine. She's joining us by phone. Welcome, Leora. Thank you. All right, there you are. Um, so glad you're with us. And with me in the studio is IHI Vice President Pat Rutherford, whose portfolio of work includes optimizing care coordination and transitions in care. Pat is co-investigator of IHI's STAR initiative, which stands for State Action on Avoidable Rehospitalizations. Welcome, Pat. Thank you, Mitch. All right. So here's how we're going to get started. And uh, think of your um, own headlines as I uh, pose that now to Pat and to Lior. I, I, I prepared them, and I said I'd like to start out by asking each of you to share some headlines from the front lines of reducing readmissions and working with teams and stakeholders to make all these important and necessary changes. So, Pat, let's start with you. We'll then go to Leora. And as they're mentioning their headlines, think of some ones that you are participants today, over a thousand of you, uh, chat some stuff in. Uh, we'll, we'll get that going as well. So, Pat? 
Thanks, thanks a lot, Madge. Uh, there's so many things that uh, I think both Lior and I could uh, outline as, as key learning and, and initiatives going on throughout the country and internationally. Also, uh, we're learning a lot from our colleagues in, in Europe and the UK. But I'm just going to touch on a few. This first uh, slide is what's called a Wordle uh, that I've just learned how to do recently, and um, uh, this depicts the the wide array of widespread initiatives throughout the U.S. that are aimed at improving discharge care and reducing readmissions. If you turn the clock back five years, there would have been very few things on this on this list. So I think even with uh, all of the concerns about valid concerns about payment reform and measurement, um, I think that uh, the the work of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid have uh, uh, really helped to catalyze action toward this very big problem. Um, so uh, what we hear now, though, with all this array of all these initiatives is many healthcare leaders and frontline clinicians and staff alike are seeking sense-making. What do I do? How do I proceed in tackling this problem? It's so big. Where do I start? What are the successful initiatives that will inform the field? How do various initiatives align? For example, you know, currently uh, many uh, hospitals uh, and healthcare systems are, are looking at patients' experience of care or HCAP scores and looking to uh, improve the patient's experience of care. I think that that is tightly linked with our work to reduce readmissions and improving the patient's experience of care, not only in the hospital, but as they transition to the next care setting, whether it be a skilled nursing facility or home. And then the coordination through uh, uh, coordination of care through patient medical homes. That is really uh, uh, expanding significantly in this country. So I could see efforts really being aligned among patient experience uh, projects, uh, improving HCAP scores, reducing readmissions in the patient's experience of care during transitions, and then the court ongoing coordination of care through patient-centered medical homes. So that's just one example how some of these initiatives could be, could be aligned and leveraged. The next slide shows uh, a very important study by uh, Hansen and Young and, and their colleagues um, uh, entitled uh, in Interventions to Reduce 30-Day Readmissions, a Systematic Review, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And what was significant about this study is that they, they really looked at pretty much all of the major initiatives that uh, are in the literature, and no single intervention implemented alone was regularly associated with reduced risk risk for 30-day rehospitalizations. So that that's a big challenge for us that are that are living in the complexity of the current healthcare system and the challenges of front care uh, frontline uh, clinicians and staff. Um, but you know they didn't find any one thing uh, such as post discharge phone calls, you know that they those in many cases if done, you know with 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 connections to other providers can be very very effective. But uh, no single intervention alone uh, is perceived uh, to date to be responsible for helping to solve this problem. So there are many, many challenges, and I think what this says, it's going to take a village uh, to solve this problem. What, what this article did point out, though, are three major areas that really show great promise in the field. One is the preparations or pre-discharge preparations in the hospital.
hospital, uh, that enhancing those routine processes in hospitals is part of the solution from their perspective. The second is uh, tightly linked to post-discharge interventions that are uh, timely and reliable uh, in the community. And last is transitional care programs such as Eric Coleman's uh, care transition intervention and Mary Naylor's advanced practice uh, transitional care model for high-risk elders. So uh, even though there's bad news, um, there is some uh, hope on the horizon in those three large areas of of care. The next slide show is a very interesting uh, slide that um, I, come acro- I came across a couple years ago, and I think it's really apt in this in this state uh, uh, in looking at the the vast array of things that contribute uh, to the to the problems we have uh, before us. The first uh, character in this Chinese symbol is the one for danger. I think, you know, there's really a perfect storm or crisis at hand. There's danger for patients, family caregivers. The healthcare system is at risk for penalties. There's no easy solutions. And lastly, the U.S. economy. I think the escalating healthcare costs, uh, I think, really are a huge challenge for the United States and other countries. And I think that um, uh, making improvements to reduce uh, unnecessary utilization of high-cost care, I think, is part of the solution. Not the only thing, but part of the solution. So I'd like to focus in, and move toward the right, which is the opportunities. I think that um, there are many, many opportunities at hand that I think can and should be addressed. The fragmentation of care, the need to, need to better prepare patients and family caregivers for care at home, better advanced illness planning, etc. The next slide is one of my favorite quotes from Don Berwick um, that says, the quality of the patient's experience is the north star for systems of care. The north star of systems of care. So what what are all of you, what is your north star experience that you would like to be designing for the patients entrusted to your care? Uh, while it's imperative to find ways to reduce costs and to avoid penalties, let's not lose sight of our North Star and your North Star, the experience of patients. Um, IHI has been engaged uh, with uh, a project or initiative called the State Action on Avoidable Rehospitalizations. It's funded by the Commonwealth Fund, and it was launched in 2009. And we've been working in three states, uh, Massachusetts, Michigan, and Washington, uh, with over 150 hospitals and more than 500 uh, community-based organizations um, to improve the transitions out of the hospital and into the next care setting. Additionally, we have been working with state leaders and steering committees to leverage the work across each of those states. The two concurrent strategies um, are provide technical assistance to frontline teams to improve transitions of care and then create and support a state-based multi-stakeholder initiatives and and, uh, uh, steering committees. The uh, state-level work uh, uh, helps to align initiatives and leverage learning, identify systemic barriers, engage payers and regulators, and create an all-payer database to assess statewide progress because there's a lot of variability with how uh, individuals um, measure uh, their readmission rates. At the front lines of care, the most significant, um, I think, hallmark of, of STAR to date has been uh, the uh, cross-continuum teams. And what we mean by a cross-continuum team is getting hospital-based uh, clinicians and staff co-designing care in partnership with their community-based clinicians um, to improve information and planning uh 
uh, out of the hospital. And we're now learning that that that's very important up front as well. So we're really trying to engage um, clinicians in having not only paper transfer of information uh, when individuals are coming into the hospital and also going home, but also when is it important and necessary to have warm handovers where clinicians have the opportunity to ask questions and to clarify uh, things that may not be clear. Uh, and then the last slide uh, before we turn to Leora is um, this depiction. It's a conceptual design that we've been building in STAR that really says that there is a trajectory of interventions that we think uh, makes a little bit of sense of all of the initiatives that, that are going on. The first is the, the imperative and important transition from the hospital to home. Discharge preparations are happening in every hospital in this country and in other countries as well. But are there opportunities to improve each of the steps of that? Absolutely, that is true. Next is activating post-acute care and getting the right resources to patients based on the assessed needs and capabilities in the hospital. Uh, the third bullet is something that's not mentioned a great deal in the body of um, conversations about readmissions. It's really having evidence-based care uh, in the communities, better models of care, patient-centered medical homes for primary care, interact programs in skilled nursing facilities, and models of um, home health care, such as what they have at the Visiting Nurse um, uh, Association in uh, New York City. And last but not least is alternative or supplemental care. And this one is really very impactful but very difficult because it requires, in most cases, additional costs for these services. Things such as uh, palliative care programs, um, uh, intensive care management, transitional care services, and the other. Uh, out of this work, there are two case studies that we can uh, uh, put in our resources that exemplify uh, action and activity and successful interventions in each of these each of these um, uh, bodies of work and that is St. Luke's and Iowa Health System and UCSF uh, Heart Failure Service and we will make those links to those case studies that are very in-depth on how they overcame barriers, what they did and results that they found there. And now I'll hand it back to you, um, Patch. Right. Thank you very much. Well, Pat set us up very nicely. I also want to remind people, uh, those of you who are with us often on WHI, uh, we try not to be overly reliant on slides. Pat and Leora both have some good ones. And if you are only joining us by phone, please email info at IHI.org and you can get a copy of the slides as well. These were kind of being put together uh, right up uh, until airtime and uh, – so we uh, weren't able to provide all this to you ahead of time, but in, uh, do go ahead and uh, request them now if you'd like. And also, when you log off the show, you can get them too. All right, Leora, let's do it this way. Um, first of all, uh, David is uh, David Nock. I, I see somebody else is on yes. here re- referencing. And uh, Pat, go ahead and talk about Ohio. Yeah. Yes, I'll, I'll jump in, Leora. Yeah. We'll hand it over to you yeah. in just one second. Uh, I apologize, uh, David. Uh, indeed, uh, the Ohio uh, Hospital Association, in collaboration with their partner. In, in the state of Ohio came to us about three years ago, two and a half, three years ago, and said, we would like, we're not part of the Commonwealth fund, funded project that you're doing in Massachusetts, Michigan, and Washington, but we're interested. Could you replicate it and help us replicate that? And actually, uh, they did replicate, and, and uh, we were able to sequence the, the changes with them with 18 hospitals. And actually, um, uh, we'll be, we'll be uh, highlighting this in IHI's um, 
uh, annual report this year at the National Forum where they showed that the 18 hospitals that were involved in the STAR initiative in Ohio had uh, greater improvement in reducing their readmission, readmission rates when compared to the other hospitals in Ohio. So they didn't start higher. They actually made greater improvement over time. So I think that's very significant. And thank you, David, for bringing that to our attention. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Uh, turning now to Leora Horwitz uh, from Yale. Glad to have you here. So, Leora, why don't you go ahead and speak to headlines? This is what, what I'm going to do in terms of flow right now. Uh, uh, just kind of comment maybe what on what Pat said, some of your own headlines. And then I'm going to ask a few people to chat in. We'll just spend just a minute or two. Uh, I'd love to see what some of you might chat in as your own headlines. And then, Leora, we'll turn to uh, the study that you and Betsy and others worked on. Okay? Terrific. Um, I want to apologize in advance for the fact that I am recovering from a cold. <clears throat> this is not usually what I sound like. Um, but <laughs> sound fine to us. It's a okay. great pleasure to be here. Um, so, you know, Pat's headlines are exactly, I think, the key headlines. And so I have nothing new to add to them, but they're so important I want to restate them. Um, so the first thing that, that Pat said is that there is no silver bullet. Single interventions don't work all by themselves. And I cannot emphasize that enough. Uh, those of you who will who are already working or who are beginning uh, to work on readmissions, you will start with a an intervention. You'll start with some low-hanging fruit, something that seems obviously broken, and you'll fix it. And it will take an enormous amount of work to fix it uh, because all of these things are systems-level problems that require all kinds of um, involvement from information technology and social workers and doctors and nurses and community. And it's it's a big production even to do one thing. And you will be disappointed because that one thing will not help matters. Um, and so I want to say up front that uh, each of those things that you are fixing is crucial. Collectively, they do matter. They matter enormously. And, and there are a, a really a, a large number now of, of very successful interventions that have reduced readmissions, but not a single one of them did only one thing. So um, the way that quality improvement activities work is that we end up often doing one thing at a time, and it's important not to get discouraged early. Uh, I speak as the the co-chair of the Yale New Haven Hospital Readmissions Committee, so I, I have personal experience in in improving these things one by one, and, and so that's my first headline message. My second headline message is exactly what Pat said as well, which is that this is a huge opportunity, um, and uh, it, with the crisis component to it as well. Uh, but this is a huge opportunity for us to really rethink how we structure our systems, both in the hospital and outside the hospital walls as well. Um, we spend a lot of time focusing on individual diseases, individual treatments for individual diseases, making sure we uh, meet the core measures and the guideline-based care for individual disease, and it's paid off tremendously. So death rates from acute MI have have fallen dramatically over the last decade or so, and that's in large part because we're doing such a good job with that care. What we haven't done is really thought systematically about our um, patients and about our systems from a global perspective of how we care for them at the time of transition. Um, so. So here's an example of, uh, that's on your screen now from my own hospital. This is the, the discharge instructions that we give to patients. It's a real 
page from our real patient of their real discharge instructions, and this is the list of medications we give them. And you can see how um, how broken it is. This is this is what we give them. There's brand names. There's no generic names, even though most patients get generic medications. There's words nobody can understand, like subcutaneously. And most important, um, we don't make it clear for patients what has changed. So I know from looking at this chart that there are two new medications, that there are two medications that have been changed in dose, that there's a medication that the doctors wanted this patient to stop. And yet we don't make it clear which those are. There's no way to tell. And this is only one of many, many ways in which the way that we structure our work is broken. So this is a real opportunity for us to start thinking about these systems. The last headline that I want to make is that um, fundamentally this is not about readmissions. If you try to design a program at your institution to reduce readmissions specifically, it will likely fail. Doctors have a hard time caring about readmissions as an outcome. Uh, hospital systems have trouble working around that. And realistically, it's not actually about readmissions. We spend a lot of time thinking about, um, you know, what what makes an individual patient get readmitted? What's a what's a related readmission? What's a avoidable readmission? What's a planned readmission? This is a kind of a an a, not a helpful way to look at things. If we look at things instead from the perspective of our systems and from the perspective of what kind of care we should be giving to our patients, we should be giving them appointments. We should be making it clear what medications they should take. We should be communicating with the outpatient doctors. These are just the basic precepts of good care. If we do that, I think we'll find that readmissions will decrease as a natural sequela, whereas focusing on readmissions themselves is less effective. Paul Pataldin up at Dartmouth often says that every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And so I think that we need to be asking ourselves, what is it about our systems in the hospital and outside the hospital that are perfectly designed to develop these high readmission risks? And what is it about our systems that we could change so that we reduce the population risk for our patients to be readmitted? What is it that we're doing that's right now increasing the risk for our patients at large? And what is it that we can do to reduce the risk for our patients at large rather than thinking about an individual patient's readmission? And I'm going to stop there and uh, we'll... There's a lot of comments I see from the audience, so we'll talk about them. <laughs> All right. That's great. Thank you, uh, Leora. A reminder uh, that when you log off the program, you can download the slides and you can also email info at IHI.org for them. So here's what I want to do because I see how time is really marching along. Um, I want you all, again, to keep thinking about some of your own headlines. I think Pat wanted to – do you want to say something briefly? But I think what we'll do then is, uh, Leora, just before we kind of open things up for questions and comments, let's talk about this national study that I alluded to. We also made it available, at least the abstract, uh, in our homepage for today's program. And I'd love it if you could just kind of give us uh, the top lines from that. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so this was a study that was funded by the Commonwealth Foundation, uh, and it's a study of hospitals that had signed up for the Hospital to Home Program, the H2H program. That's a joint program with um, the American College of Cardiology and IHI. Um, and this was a 
program that hospitals could sign up for who are interested in reducing readmissions for heart failure. So when they signed up, we did a baseline survey of the hospitals to find out what they were doing for their practices at large, practices that we thought had something to do with transitional care and that would reduce readmissions. Um, we were we surveyed 537 hospitals, which was 90% of the hospitals that had signed up. We got terrific response. And in the next slide, you'll see just something about what those hospitals look like. Um, uh, so there, most of them were relatively, were either small or mid-sized hospitals, not a lot of giant teaching hospitals here. Only 14% were teaching hospitals. So these were really hospitals that mirror the typical hospital in the U.S. This was not, you know, the Yales of the of the country. Uh, about a quarter were for profit, most non-for-profit, and most of them were urban. And what we did was we just asked, how often are you doing X, Y, and Z? How often are you doing things that everybody, I think, would agree are basic, general, good practices? And in the next slide, you'll see 10 of them that we've listed here, just uh, 10 that we thought were sort of most uh, commonly talked about as being useful. And and almost everybody is monitoring their readmission rates. So um, if you go back to the previous slide, you'll see that almost everybody said that they were monitoring their readmission rates. Um, most people said that they had a QI team. They, they, they were actively working to reduce readmissions. And then we started asking about how their actual practices worked. Do they provide a coherent, consistent, comprehensive list of information to patients when they go home? As we talked about before, we so often do that badly. And only three quarters were even willing to say that they did it, let alone did it well. Less than two-thirds of hospitals were calling patients after discharge to see how they were doing, where we know that that's a very helpful thing to do. Uh, just about half of hospitals said that they were confident that they were giving patients some kind of written plan, for, you know, some discharge instructions, what to do in case of uh, ongoing symptoms. Half said that they reliably gave their patients follow-up appointments. Only a third said that they reliably alerted the outpatient physician that the patient was being discharged. A third actually tracked internally how well they were doing at giving appointments to their patients. Uh, less than a quarter involved pharmacists. So these are things that, you know, that many people are talking about as being just basic good care. And this was a survey study, so we weren't pulling charts. This, we were just asking people what they thought they were doing at their institution, which is probably an overestimate of what they're actually doing. Uh, and even so, um, we thought the practice was surprisingly poor in terms of the, the, the spread of, of basic uh, practice. And on the next slide, this is just a sort of uh, collection of how many of these 10 hospitals are implementing. So most hospitals um, implemented five or fewer of these of these sort of basic key practices. So I think that although um, there's undoubtedly elements of readmissions that we can't have control over, that patients are just sick and social situations matter, still our own house is not in order yet. And uh, I think this is a nice opportunity for us to really stop and regroup and think what we're doing and how we could get our own house in order. 
Thank you so much, Leora. And by the way, uh, your voice sounds fine with your cold. And uh, thank you very much. We'll give you a moment to maybe take a sip of tea. I'm going to turn to Pat now. Before we go to Q&A, Pat, um, and maybe Leora will have time for you to jump in too. What do you think is going on that makes implementation and execution so uneven across all these key interventions? As you, has the, is it the problem of ownership? Too many people's problems? Uh, the, just the, the sheer complexity? Well, um, uh, yes. I, I think that one of the things that uh, we've learned not only in, in this work on the body of work for readmissions, but our work in redesign of primary care practices, you know, the work I led uh, years ago on transforming care at the bedside, we're now the work in, you know, in STAR and some of our other initiatives to reduce readmissions. It's, it's really hard to embed new practices in busy clinicians' jobs, whether it be residents or doctors or hospitalists or nurses um, or care managers. They all are very, very busy. And so one of the things is that we learned in TCAP, or Transforming Care at the Bedside, was a need to really look at people's roles and what should we stop doing and how can we embed uh, new practices that, that make sense into, into you know, people's frontline work. So, you know, I'd like to just maybe comment a little bit about what we're learning in, in our work at, at, at iChai and, and STAR in particular, sure. but through working closely with leaders of other um, initiatives, um, uh, Project Boost, uh, the Society for uh, Hospital Medicine, Project RED, uh, and Hospital to Home initiative that uh, Leora has just mentioned in her study. The good news about these interventions are is that there is a tremendous amount of similarity amongst the recommendations for the changes. So as Leora described the interventions that you know were in the hospital to home program, they are very similar to what Boost recommends, what uh, the randomized control trial of Brian Jack and his colleagues showed in Project Red, and what we're learning in STAR. They have different tools, different people carry out different roles. The one thing where I think the biggest traction is being made, uh, and I think there's been a tremendous amount of uh, initial work in, in, in reducing readmissions and improving care coordinations in the population of patients with heart failure. Uh, Primarily, I think first because that's a very large volume of patients. The challenge is, is most heart failure patients don't have just one clinical problem. They often have, have many clinical problems. But nevertheless, I think many uh, hospitals and their community partners are tackling first the uh, population of patients with heart failure. And what, in my opinion, has been most successful in those is if they assign or dedicate specific nursing resources in most cases, uh, RNs, advanced practice nurses, and, and uh, clinical nurse specialists to carry out those enhanced assessment of patients, uh, more uh, the, the standardized teaching, uh, thinking about what, what, what needs and what, what setting they need to go in the next place, you know, collaborating with uh, community providers, and then the handoffs of the, of the communication to the community. Um, that said, you know, that is, I think, you know, if I, if I had one recommendation about the implementation of these recommended guidelines, it's easier to embed it into a resource and pay for an extra FT or two to do that in a large hospital and the community setting. And, and that's definitely linked with heart failure clinics and other outpatient uh, resources and, and, and supports. That said, um, I think that these needs are universal. And that the needs that we're identifying in any one population and what has 
the, all of these uh, boost red star and hospital to home are identifying these are needs for all patients and so I think I, I agree completely with, with what Leora said we need to really have a redesign of the system that that creates better coordination of care across settings and and honors the patient's experience over time and I think that it is possible to embed some of these enhancements and teaching things into practice in the hospital, in primary care, in heart failure clinics, and in um, home health agencies. So um, I, I'm hopeful that in some of the efforts and all of these initiatives that we're going to continue to learn about how we can embed these practices and heighten nurses and doctors and social workers and care managers in every clinical setting uh, to how they can enhance what they're already doing because they're already doing the processes. It's the qualitative difference of what we're uh, advocating for. Okay, sounds good. Leora, anything you want to add to that? Uh, the, you know, the question is, well, why is it so difficult? And I, I think Pat really answered it, which is that solving this problem is solving systems, and systems are never easy to change. I'll give you just a silly example from Yale. When when we looked at our discharge summaries, we found that a, about a third of them were never sent to anybody. Uh, we dictated them, often very timely dictated them. In fact, the content was very good, but um, they didn't go anywhere. They just sat in the chart. And so while they were useful for the readmission, they were not so useful in uh, pre preventing them. And so we thought, well, this can't be difficult. You know, we, we just need to automatically somehow send it. Uh, what we were relying on was people individually, every single person dictating them was individually having to say who they wanted the summary to be sent to. And when you rely on individuals every time having to do something like that, of course, there are misses. Well, it turned out it was exceedingly difficult to automate that process. There were multiple different lists of doctors and multiple different computer systems that didn't talk to each other and medical records, which wasn't connected with the registration. And, and actually, it turned out to be a year-long process to get that to work. So, um, so unfortunately, because we didn't grow our systems from scratch, thinking about this kind of coordination and communication across boundaries, uh, it's often difficult then to retrofit them and to reorganize and to revamp how we communicate with patients and, and how we do things in the hospital. But but it is doable. And, um, and when it's done, it's so much more effective for so many um, different outcomes and for satisfaction and for efficiency and effectiveness that it's, it's worth doing. But it, but it is difficult. Okay, thank you. Well, um, difficult but not impossible, and um, uh, maybe we'll hear a little bit more about examples uh, at, as we get into the discussion now uh, with all of you about where things uh, are working, and I think everyone needs to be reminded of that. We're both learning from all of you who've joined us today and some of the organizations uh, that Leora is in touch with, including her own home organization, as well as uh, the, the um, participants in STAR. Some of you have already popped in your questions and comments. I appreciate that. I realize I was uh, maybe trying to do a little too much today in trying to get you to type in some headlines, but you're all still welcome to do that as well. What's the word from your organization? Uh, Pat is also looking at this scroll with me. And uh, John, I think people pretty much have got the hang of uh, chat, so should we just kind of go and just a reminder, do all participants, uh, that's who you're sending this to, send to all participants in that way. We'll all see your questions, and you're all welcome to respond to each other. Pat? 
Okay, um, I'll start with uh, the comment and question from uh, Lynn Gale about uh, are we, do we have any um, experience with working with agencies on aging and, and community resources as we dis, uh, plan pa- uh, discharge patients? Absolutely. And one of the, one of the things that uh, we're emphasizing very strongly in, in, in the STAR uh, uh, cross-continuum teams is that enhanced assessment, really digging deeper than what nurses and doctors typically fill out as quote-unquote quote, the enhanced assessment or assessment for discharge preparation that they typically do. Really what we're asking nurses and, and frontline clinicians that are working closely with patients in the hospital, almost to be investigative reporters, really underst- asking the five whys. Why are they in the hospital? Well, uh, they didn't take their medications. Well, why aren't they taking their medications? Because they couldn't afford to get them. Why didn't they apply to Medicaid? Well, there were unintended consequences of applying for Medicaid. They lost some of their other services if they did that. So really deeply understanding why patients are not quote unquote compliant that we really don't use that anymore, but typically that that is what is seen that they're not compliant with their regimen at home. Uh, really understanding why they why they can't carry that out, and really understand that. And oftentimes, in addition to the clinical needs that we both Leora and I have addressed, there are significant. Uh, support needs that, that individuals need in their homes, particularly if they don't have uh, uh, live-in family caregivers. So absolutely, we've been working closely with agencies on aging, uh, community services such as Meals on Wheels and many other programs to help uh, individuals um, with special needs. Uh, and very much so, I think that expansion has been one of the uh, other hallmarks of cross-continuum teams, also including ambulance drivers. They've been, you know, there's great insights from ambulance drivers and those that uh, transport patients back and forth to different appointments. They oftentimes see subtle changes in those patients that they know well. What about this question, uh, either Pat or Leora, about special um, RNs who's role, really, or they're called, referred to as special discharge RNs. Is that a practice uh, that is helpful? The uh, writer here is suggesting that maybe that's actually something that's coming and going away. Uh, uh, care managers in the hospital or care managers it, in the community? It's referred to as uh, wondering how many people are using special discharge RNs to work with the patient for a safe discharge. Yeah. Well, I, I can't, I can't, I can only comment on the experience from STAR, and I think maybe this is where yeah. the uh, many, many, many participants on this on this uh, WHI uh, session could maybe answer what what they're doing, and we'll make this chat available to folks afterwards. Um, uh, I think that many are using the resources that are already in existence. So what we're recommending is that the most hospitals uh, are having some kind of decision making rounds or communication. Uh, in a lot of the large, uh, larger hospitals, they have what, what's called multidisciplinary rounds. Now, some are called discharge rounds or length of stay rounds, but they have already many individuals from different disciplines coming together to talk about how to optimize the hospitalization and get the patient effectively and efficiently discharged. What we're asking uh, teams to do is now add a second role for that team, that their role is also to ask, what do we think in our best clinical judgment the patient is likely to come back in the hospital in the next 30 days? If so, why? And then what can we do about that? Now, what the challenge is in a lot of the hospital staff said, well, gosh, well, we, we can't control, you know, getting finances for them, and this is out of our control, and we've got so much work to do. Well, the, the job, I think, of that, that decision-making team is to 
set up the resources and supports for patients and family caregivers when they go home. And the list of things that you can't provide then becomes your list that you go to your executive leaders uh, and the hospital in the system, in the ACO or whatever that organization is or community uh, organization that, that's coordinating this and say, okay, this is our list of things. And if that's a consistent list of, you know, the insufficient mental health services and many of the things that, that we know are, are really, really missing in a lot of communities, then that's the list that you go to the payers, you go to the, you know, your Medicaid department, you go to others and say, this are, these are things that we can improve in our system of care that would not only improve or probably reduce readmissions, but also, as Lior said, our ultimate goal is to prevent admissions in the first place and provide better coordinated care in the community. Leora, feel free to jump in on that particular question, and I think I may lob one at you that uh, is being asked in a couple of different ways in the chat, which is, are there any things that we should stop doing uh, as, as we're going along here? Are we learning about certain things as we come at this from many different angles, <laughs> a complex system? Are there some things we're discovering maybe we either don't need to do or shouldn't do? Um. Well, I think we're still in the realm of not doing enough, um, but I think what does tend to happen is that uh, we have a lot of redundancy, and so because uh, we haven't really specified roles well and because we still aren't working very well as teams, as interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary teams, um, I, I think it does happen that Many people go in to reconcile the medication list or educate the patient about appointments or so forth. And so I, I do think that there is a certain amount of um, duplication of effort that could be streamlined. But um, I, I really think that we're still in the we're still in the era of doing too little. Then that it is that we're doing too many things and we can take some of them away. Um, I wanted to comment just briefly on the other two points. We we at Yale. Um, are one of the community care transition program sites, and I just wanted to put a plug-in for that for those hospitals who aren't aware of it. Uh, so the Affordable Care Act specifies in Section 3026 that if you're a hospital uh, or a community that has higher than average readmission rates, that you're eligible to apply for the community care transitions program to get additional money to work on uh reorganizing systems. And and so our area agency on aging, as well as our hospital and another local hospital, collectively applied for this program and are now participating. And what's great about it is that it allows us to really officially break down these barriers that were existing between these sites. And so that now we have agency on aging, social workers coming into the hospital to see patients even before they go home and then follow them after they go home. And it's a wonderful opportunity for us to really build bridges that we probably wouldn't have done otherwise. And so for those of you out there who have higher than average readmission rates on the, the publicly reported measures, um, they're still giving out funding and there's, you can still apply. Uh, as for using special discharge RNs, I also just wanted to say that a lot of people start with that. We started with that, too, and it's effective. When you put more bodies there to get work done, the work happens more often, but it's not very generalizable and it's not very sustainable because it's expensive. And so um, more and more people more and more we're trying very hard to move towards reorganizing the way that we do care on the unit itself without having to add extra bodies. Okay. Thank you very much, Leora. Pat? 
Well, I, I, I largely agree with what, uh, what Leora has said. The only thing that I would say is that I think there are inefficient systems, and I, I think that's waste. Uh, so it's not maybe things that people could be doing, but the repetitive things and the duplicative things, I think, is waste. And if we got rid of some of that work for everyone in all clinical settings, I think that would free people up to do the more valuable things for patients. Um, that, But that's a whole system redesign. So, you know, we could go into that on another call. Um, but, you know, there are a couple things that I think are redundant and are wasteful currently uh, that I'm a little worried about, and that's uh, follow-up phone calls. Uh, really, one of the things that I don't think has been well thought about, and I think that 48-hour period of time that a high-risk patient is being discharged from the hospital to home, who owns the care there? Who is the ultimate provider? Is it the hospitalist? Is it the resident? Is it the cardiologist that's in the inpatient setting? Who owns the care in that period of time that is almost no, no man's land almost before they see their physician or nurse practitioner in their next setting of care? Is it the hospital, so the transition really doesn't happen until they're seen in the next clinical setting. Uh, is it um, is it at the time they leave the door? You know, we send the information, and then it should be in the hands and received by the individuals in the community settings, where it be a skilled nursing facility, cardiology clinic, you know, primary care um, uh, primary care setting. You know. Who owns the patient in that in that period of time? I don't think that's well understood, and that's one of the important things that I think would come out of this cross-continuum team collaboration about, okay, who owns the patient and who should they be calling on day two if they're not seeing a physician until day four or five? You know, should they call the hospitalist? Should they call the, the primary care doctor? Who? It's sort of that, that, that land, and I think that needs a lot of attention and a lot of thought. The, the second thing is, is that the follow-up phone calls, that's one of the things I think people are hoping they'll get a big impact because it has been well-received. Patients love it. If somebody that knows them particularly, you know, calls them and asks how they're doing, I think it's very, um, uh, patients generally like that. But what we're hearing is they're starting to get phone calls from lots of people. It may be the inpatient nursing staff. They may be getting a call from the, the home health nurse that was involved with them prior to the hospitalization. They may get a, be getting a call from their payer, a, a case management program within the, the payer. And they may be getting a call from, you know, uh, an array of settings, all well-meaning folks, but it's not well-coordinated. One phone call from someone that then could get the information to all those people who would like to have it and need it to provide coordinated care is what's needed, not five or six phone calls to the same individual. So that's, I think, some of the what's on the horizon to create some of those systems and think critically instead of just adding things. Sounds good. Uh, and that relates to you were referring to kind of uh, how, how do we know what's working and, and um, some issues around redundancies there. Uh, Curtis is asking, is there a best practice or any research demonstrating the impact on the timing of the primary care provider appointment follow-up um, regarding 30-day readmissions? Um, maybe, Leora, should I start with you on that? Any research on that? And then I'll come back to Pat. There is research on this, and um, it's a little conflicting. There was a paper in JAMA uh, about a year ago now uh, showing that hospitals that gave follow-up appointments to more of their patients had lower readmission rates than hospitals that, on balance, gave, gave follow-up appointments to fewer of their patients. 
when you try to look at this from an individual patient perspective, uh, it's a little bit harder to demonstrate. So there is a study at a Mayo Clinic looking at uh, readmission rates for patients that had early appointments versus patients that didn't, and they weren't able to find much of a difference. Remember, though, that that's a little complicated because we're better as clinicians at giving appointments to people we're really worried about. And so, um, so those patients who get early appointments tend to be a little sicker, and it it's a complicated analysis, but but on the hospital level, it does seem that that hospitals that get it together well enough to get appointments for their patients on balance do better at readmissions. Pat, anything on yeah, that? Yeah, I would just add to that. I said uh, in in the absence of definitive evidence, you know, what we recommend is sort of to the teams we work with, whatever the the subject is, learn your way to what the right answer is to the appointments. And I think probably one size doesn't fit all. There's probably some segmentation that probably you will learn your way into. So, for example, about readmissions, what we recommend is that hospitals go back and just look at the last six, nine months, maybe a year if they have that data, and look at uh, when the patients are being admitted within that 30-day window. What we have found almost universally is there's a large burst in the first 72 hours. A large number of patients are readmitted in that window, and then almost 50 to 60% are admitted within two weeks. And then it, it staggers off and is variable in the next uh, two weeks in the month. So what that says to us is that there is a segment of your population, or the populations that they're looking at, that need to be seen by a professional probably in that first couple days. Um, so not every patient that's in the hospital that can't teach back uh, exactly how to take their medications and care for themselves can just stay in the hospital. So they need to go home, but they need supports. And so our recommendation is is to have for those patients that are very high risk that, that, that we think are in that first 72-hour window of risk is to have a home health visit that's coordinated with primary care or the specialist where they get their routine care or they're seen by a physician in two to three days. Uh, and that's not popular because a lot of people don't have that kind of access. But we think uh, that that's going to be important for a certain segment, not everyone. And so uh, what we suggest is in the absence of a risk assessment tool that clearly delineates who's in that category, many of the risk assessment tools are based on administrative data that will give you, will narrow the field a bit. But I think a lot of the things that we've talked about, who needs, you know, meals and transportation and some of the other factors, I think are as important as some of the clinical parameters that we're going to get off of administrative data. Pat, let me ask you a question. One of the unique aspects of STAR is the engagement of state leaders uh, working with clinicians and healthcare organizations. What do you feel, uh, so many years into this initiative, uh, this has contributed to this effort to date? What difference does it make when you engage with all these players, including the state officials? Well, I, th I think it's really, really important. I think um, what we're finding is what on that first slide that I showed, there's a lot of things going on. Uh, we've talked to folks in Canada in different provinces. We've talked to uh, uh, individuals in various states, not only within STAR but others, and there's a lot of different things going on. And I think the more we can coordinate efforts and align them so that people – now, so like should I use, do Boost or should I do Red or should I do STAR, should I do Hospital to Home? And I think some sense-making, we're really, really, really trying to do that. So, for example, at um, ICHI's National Forum uh, early in December – Mark Williams, the lead uh, principal investigator for Boost, uh, Brian Jack, the principal investigator for Red, Leora, representing uh, the work of uh, Hospital to Home, and Gail Nielsen, who's been involved in the uh, star work from the beginning, 
they all are going to be presenting on their approaches in a three-hour session so that everyone can see how all of them really have merit and they all are similar. And you can either choose one or pick tools from each other and they're synergistic in many ways. So that kind of sense-making I think is going to be important uh, for funders to think about when they fund any one of these uh, or to uh, how to create synergies between them so they're, they're not so disparate. And then when you get to the community level, I think patient-centered medical home demonstrations, you know, having um, having readmissions on their radar screen as well as many of the other, you know, building blocks for building a, a patient-centered medical home, how do we coordinate with agencies on aging, all that. I think the state has a really significant role to play in aligning all that and bringing attention to problems that may be raised to different uh, payers, including Medicaid and other payers in the state. Thank you, Pat. Um, I wanted to, um, there's a question that's, um, in some ways, we're, we're talking about all these different entities needing to kind of get on the same page about the patient and, and all these various uh, silos in healthcare learning to talk and coordinate with one another. A couple of questions are sort of looking at it from the vantage point of the outpatient world, the mm -hmm. ambulatory care practice. Where and who from that entity almost needs to be sort of forward-leaning as well? kind of meeting um, whatever the hospital is doing with discharge, almost meeting those entity, that entity halfway. Uh, who Maybe, Leora, let me start with you. People are asking about community health workers. Are there certain people who should be on point in an office mm -hmm. practice who are also sort of have discharge very much on, you know, uh, mm -hmm. as part of their portfolio? Yes, well, as a primary care physician myself, this is really near and dear to my heart. I, I think outpatient doctors and outpatient clinicians and outpatient care coordination and and community navigators and so forth have been really underutilized and underconsidered as people are trying to reduce readmissions. And I, I think it's the next area that we all really need to think more about including. It's very difficult to reduce readmissions or to improve patient care post-discharge purely from a hospital without coordinating. As to who should have that role, I, I think that's really very community dependent. Um, for medical practices that are moving towards the patient-centered medical home type of model where there's really resources in the office practice to track patients, to follow up with patients, to have um, that kind of close interaction, then the primary care practice is the, the natural setting. In other cases, in other communities, it may be more of a, a role that the, health, the home health agency uh, can help with, or if it's a community that has uh, access to community health workers or to patient navigators and so forth, then, then they may take on the role. In other in other areas, it will be the agency on aging. Uh, so I, you know, I don't think there's a one size fits all solution to that question, but it it is of the essence. Um, you know, we when we were trying to work on remissions early on at Yale New Haven, one of the first things we did is we set up a monthly meeting with representatives from every home care agency in our neighborhood and every nursing home and every infusion uh, agency and every hospice agency. And we all got together in a room once a month just to talk about, we would pick a patient to talk about and we'd get the perspective from the community and from the hospital of the patient and then we would just talk. And one of the first things that our our home agencies told us is that they would get 
a form from us with a medication list and you know some basic information, but they never got the discharge summary. And so they had very little information about what was going on with the patient. They didn't know what things were recommended for follow-up. They didn't know what was still pending. They didn't know a lot of the information that, uh, that we usually put in the discharge summary, but not in the form that we send to the agencies. And they said, look, if you would only just send us the summary, we'd be so much more effective. We would be able to tell, you know, our patients what they're supposed to change and what they're supposed to follow up with. And, you know, it had never occurred to me that they didn't have that information and that they would want it. So in many ways, I think that our community agencies and, and clinicians can be of more help. We, we haven't, we, we just forget about them often. Well, well, I'll just, you know, we only have a few minutes left here, but I'm going to be put out a radical thought here. Just, you know, just, just, just as as something for the the end, you know, one of the, one of the things, you know, if I were to, you know, create a, you know, utopian or, you know, perfect system, you know, I think that, you know, if if we're saying the heart of, you know, care coordination would be ideally out of primary care as it is in the UK, you know, they have nurses, not only care managers, but district, what they call district nurses that go out into the community. So, Greater integration in my in my mind of not only the patients that are medical home where they have care management embedded into the practice, which I think is terrific, and we need to expand that. But in addition to that, you know, maybe an ideal model is have the have the home health uh, nurses be part of that system in some way, even if they're not housed there. That perhaps they they need to have a better link to primary care, in my opinion. I think sometimes they're, they're siloed as well. So that's one thing. The second thing is, is that there's a terrific thing going on in Vermont. They have what's called Blueprint for Health. And what they have is they, they are really uh, striving, I think, to have all of their sites, primary care sites, to be patient-centered medical homes. And they're really, 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 really uh, working on that uh, throughout the entire state. The other thing that they have is they have brought all their payers together and they have now uh, all put money into a pot for community-based services. So for coaches, for transportation, for agency on aging. So they have pooled their resources so that the complexity of who gets what is now taken away for the, for the clinicians in, um, and the care providers in, in the state of Vermont. So the ideal state would be a patient has an exacerbation of an illness, goes into the hospital. It's a vulnerable state. They stabilize them in, in the hospital. And the ideal state in my mind is to have the primary care doc or advanced practice nurse or care manager go into the hospital and they co-write the discharge orders that then the primary care team in collaboration with other specialists in the community and community resources are then initiated out of the hub, which is primary care. Just a radical thought for the future, but uh, could, you know, be a real thought for redesign. Well, not so utopian if, if it's actually being <laughs> carried out. So something to learn from. Well, okay, so we're heading to the top of the hour. We're just going to run over a few minutes so we can wrap up a, a little bit. First, John, why don't you uh, flash the slide about some stuff that will be coming in 2013 and just quickly remind people about that. Yeah, we, uh, we hope everybody's enjoyed the conversation this afternoon about reducing readmissions. Uh, in the spring of next year, IHI will be hosting another readmission seminar featuring Pat Rutherford, Eric Coleman, and some other leaders on the front lines of reducing hospital readmissions. Uh, the seminar has been incredible.
incredibly popular in the past, and it's a great opportunity to engage with a community that's working hard to tackle one of healthcare's biggest challenges. Now, we're still finalizing the dates and location for this, uh, the, the meeting next spring, so stay tuned to IHI.org and our Facebook and Twitter pages for the details. Thanks a lot, John. And I want to thank all the participants uh, hanging in here with us. We had a large crowd, which is fantastic. We know we need to do uh, more of these kinds of programs on WIHI. Pat alluded to what's coming up at the forum uh, that we hope. Uh, there's some blogging going on that Pat is doing. Uh, tune in uh, as much as you can and all these organizations and the rich work that's going on at Yale as well. Uh, I also want to thank all of you who are chatting back and forth with one another. Uh, you can download this chat when you get finished with the program today. And if you were, again, only uh, joining us by phone, ask for a copy of the chat at info at IHI.org. So I'm going to give uh, Leora and then Pat a very quick uh, sign-off here. Leora, I'm going to flash up the slide that you had. New CMS measures coming in 2013. We'll put that one up there so that gives you uh, uh, some <laughs> words to live by. Uh, Leora, tell us about that, and then uh, we'll thank you. Um, well, just so people know, the um, CMS currently is publicly reporting readmission rates for pneumonia, heart failure, and acute MI. Coming uh, in 2013, uh, there will be two new measures that are publicly reported. Uh, the first one is unplanned 30-day readmission following admission for any condition, so we call this the hospital-wide readmission measure. I actually led development of this measure uh, for Medicare, so... I'm exceedingly familiar with it. Um, and the second measure is unplanned 30-day readmission rates following elective hip or knee replacement, which is the first exclusively or specifically surgical readmission measure that they will be reported. Um, and others are coming down the pipeline as well. So uh, while currently we can only measure those three uh, diseases that are all medicine-focused, um, that universe will expand rapidly. And so, again, uh, the onus is on us to improve our system's globally for patients, not just focusing on particular subgroups like heart failure. I also just wanted to I put up here the vote on the uh, hospital-wide uh, measure by the National Quality Forum just to make it clear to people that these are, um, th these were sort of, while controversial in the end, uh, universally and uniformly approved. So uh, there is broad enthusiasm for measurements like this in the measurement community. Leora, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, your participation, and we look forward to engaging with you some more. Pat uh, said you, you'll be on board at the forum, which is terrific. Uh, any of you planning to go to the forum, or if you're thinking about it, you can check out all the inf information on IHI.org. Pat, some parting words from Pat. Well, I think the parting words are is I can't wait to read all the chat. I think that uh, <laughs> right. we have a motto at IHI, I'll teach, I'll learn, and I think um, I haven't been able to read and keep up with all the chat. So uh, thank you for all of your contributions. There is rich work going on out there, and I think um, we, I, all want to learn from it. So I appreciate everyone's uh, contributions. Um, uh, I think we need to help each other. Uh, this is a big problem, and um, I think we'll figure it out if we keep 
uh, keeping the patients in the center. All right. Well, thank you, Pat Rutherford. Thank you, uh, Leora Horowitz. Really, really appreciate. Again, if you're tweeting about all this, uh, think of putting at IHI uh, in your tweet so that we can uh, pick up on that on um, IHI's Twitter feed. You can also uh, jump onto IHI's Facebook page where we'll put up a few comments as well and we can perhaps uh, get a conversation going there as well. Uh, again, I want to thank everybody. There were over 1,400 of you uh, with us today at a certain point, uh, reflecting that we will, uh, we, we, we tried to do a lot in this one hour. We couldn't do it all. We'll do more, and we do have some things uh, being planned right now, so stay tuned. Next up on WIHI, a special encore broadcast of a very popular program with Victor Montori and Nile Shah from Mayo on minimally disruptive medicine. Dr. Montori is also speaking at IHI's forum in December, and information about all of that is on the homepage of IHI.org. Remember, as we've tried to tell you throughout the hour, you can download the chat, you can download the slides. We'd love it if you'd uh, fill out a brief survey. And if you were just on the phone today, just ask for this material, info at IHI.org. The people... Uh, who help make WIHI possible include Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, and Dina Cox. We have some fun music that opens and closes the program, their original arrangements uh, by Aaron Flanders and Miguel Sapasoa. And as always, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks a lot. Good day, everyone.